Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news in the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a couple of new Star Wars games coming out sometime in the future. We're going to end it talking about Ubisoft and shared economies and a little bit more about whatever the hell they're doing with uh, NFTs. But first, a quick update from last week. So last week, 34 staff from Raven's QA department revealed that they were organizing with the Communication Workers of America to unionize and ask actors in Blizzard to voluntarily recognize it. Uh, And uh, obviously they did not. (laughs) Instead, Activision Blizzard announced it will be forcing a vote with the National Labor Review Board and called on that vote to include everyone at the studio. So this is essentially Activision's attempt to thin the vote and basically roll the dice, the, the roll the dice on Raven as a company, as an entire company, to decline the uh, the union. And um, I think it is a good roll of the dice. Not saying that I wish for this to happen, but just looking at it from the perspective of uh, unions and unionizing this is going to make it a lot tougher for Raven to become a union and there was one website that I was reading up on when I was preparing for this story and I want to say it was gamesindustry.biz and they brought up a lot of points that I agreed with which is you know when it comes to QA, quality assurance, in video games, a lot of QA employees are not permanent employees. They're usually contract work contractors. You know, these are men and women that are essential to the process, right? They're essential to the creation of the game, but they're actually not direct creators of the game, if that sort of makes sense. Like, it would be really tough to ship a game properly without a QA team present. But that website brought up a lot of good points, which is will the the rest of the company, talking specifically about Raven, have their back in terms of would they be willing to risk their own jobs in order to defend these um, testers? And I don't know exactly what happened during that period of time that this QA team was on strike. Were the rest of Raven supportive? I haven't really read any stories about that. But it really brings up a lot of questions in terms of how is it that the rest of this company is going to vote. And I think Activision is sort of banking on them, you know, not being there to defend the QA team. More so than if it was one of the more internal departments, like the art department, for example. There will probably be a lot more camaraderie there in terms of forming a union. The other thing that Activision did was, in an attempt to weaken the QA department's unionization efforts, Activision immediately split them up upon returning to work. So the QA department from Raven was on strike for about, I think it was like six, seven weeks. And... 
they passed out the union vote cards. They got the majority, which I think they got like 71% or something like that, of Ravens QA team to vote. Um, and basically what the vote meant was that they had a desire to form a union, not that, hey, once this vote is done, we're officially a union, uh, because that's just step one. And once that vote went through as a show of, I guess, good faith, they returned to um, their jobs. The moment that they did, Activision immediately split them up. Uh, and their reasoning for it was citing a common QA practice in the game industry. A practice is called embedded QA, where basically instead of testers being in a completely separate building on their own, Testers are integrated within the rest of the studio's workforce. And apparently this is something that is a common practice, like a lot of studios, but it is not something that they've done at Activision. So they sort of spun it as, hey, this will make us more efficient. But obviously you have to question the timing of a move like this for them to all of a sudden put in this practice that the rest of the industry has been doing for a while to put it back in place the moment that these QA testers come back from uh strike obviously the timing is very very questionable there's no way that anyone can trust the Activision is doing this to benefit uh the project which i think the only thing that raven is working on right now is warzone i think they're just doing uh regular work on uh call of duty warzone at the moment um so it's i mean it's it's, it's pretty obvious that they that it is a, as as an effort to um once again, separate the QA workforce. And I guess from the outside, I look at it and I, I, I sort of say to myself, isn't this more beneficial uh, for this union vote? Because now you have these QA members that are more ingrained with the rest of the team throughout that can probably get closer to other people and, and you know, maybe uh, convince them to meet outside of work in order to talk to them about unionizing. I'm sure there's probably a lot of other stuff that Activision is going to be doing in the next few weeks in order to ensure that this vote goes their way. And, you know, from all the information that I think that I have, I just don't see this union vote actually happening. Um, I think a lot of the employees are going to be afraid to lose their jobs. I think a lot of them are going to be afraid of being blacklisted from the industry. I think a lot of them are looking at this Microsoft acquisition as a hopeful parachute for what's been going on with the company, and they would rather not rock the boat before something like that happens. Um, so honestly, I would be very surprised if this vote is successful. Uh, of course, I really hope that it, it is. This would be have a huge impact on the industry. A few weeks ago, we talked about a small developer called Vodio, I think it was, that formed their own union and they immediately had their company recognize it. So it officially became the first video game union in North America, if I'm not mistaken. But obviously it doesn't, in terms of scale, this is this will be a... a, a a much bigger kind of plot on the board of game unionization if a studio embedded in one of the biggest publishers in the industry 
were able to successfully unionize. You know, when you have something like that happen within a company as big as Activision Blizzard King, it definitely is something that can send waves to other departments, to other companies to make their own attempts. It's similar as what, what's happening with Starbucks right now, where there was one um, Starbucks in, I think it was Buffalo, New York, that voted to unionize. Um, I, I don't think they've been officially recognized as a union, but then it's created like, I think 50 other locations are now um, unionizing or casting votes to unionize and things like that. So it's definitely something that can build momentum, which is exactly why Activision does not want this to happen. And, um, you know, fortunately, if, if, if and when Microsoft takes this company over, it's not like Microsoft is going to start recognizing unions anyway, right? Um, unions are a worst case nightmare scenario for any company because it gives workers a platform, right? It's, it's right there in the name. It's it's unionizing. It's it's bringing all these workers together for a common goal and 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 helping them realize that they have power in numbers is the one thing that uh, companies do not want you to understand and realize is how much power that workers have, um, which is why a lot of these companies are so adamant at sort of walking that legal tightrope of, you know, they can't outright say, no, you can't form a union, but they will do everything in their power to make sure that it doesn't happen. On top of that, Blizzard announced a new game via a recruitment tweet titled Unannounced Survival Game. In that tweet, or in that graphic that they put up, they wrote, quote, Blizzard is embarking on our next quest. We are going on a journey to a whole new universe home to a brand new survival game for PC and console. Every story needs a teller and every world needs builders. What if that could be you? Now, this looks to be a sort of pure recruitment effort for a game in its really early stages. So it's kind of likely this game probably won't see the light of day until like 2025 or something like that. We probably won't really see anything about this game. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting because this would be Blizzard's first new IP in, in, in six years. Overwatch was the last one. Or probably, I mean, it would probably be longer than that. Maybe, I mean, the first announced IP in six years, but obviously it would take longer for us to actually see what it is. And um, it obviously could become a valuable intellectual property for Xbox. Obviously, zero chance that this hits uh, PlayStation. For it to be something that's completely brand new, coming from Blizzard, uh, you know, Blizzard has become notorious with very, very long development times. <laughs> um, I think it's a lot of it is just mismanagement um, from part of their producers, but obviously they're, they they've become synonymous with taking really, really long to ship games. So this will be interesting to see next year once Microsoft takes over to see if there's something that they can do to streamline this type of process and hopefully get this game going. Uh, because apparently a lot of, it, it basically internally at Blizzard, there were a lot of retweets and replies to this announcement, basically from employees that 
are currently working on the game or have worked on the game in the past, and a lot of them have been uh, praising the team behind it, praising the game, saying it's 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 really good, it's great. They enjoyed their time working on it. Jason Schreier from Bloomberg tweeted, "Quote: For what it's worth, even some of the most disgruntled Blizzard employees rave about this game slash team." So, um, obviously, like I said, this announcement is a little bit weird for them to just sort of come out and say, hey, this is a new game we're working on. This is exactly what it is. There was just uh, a singular uh, piece of concept art that was shown. It was sort of like a a hunter with like the skull of an animal. And then there were like these footprints that you can uh, clearly see embedded in soil, sort of like this, you know, rainbow thermal type of vision on the um, the footprints and uh, you know survival games are definitely not a brand new genre but it sounds like a really cool genre to see a team like Blizzard tackle and like I said it could prove to become a very valuable premier IP for Xbox as I said there's just there's a zero chance once that deal goes through that whatever this game becomes will ever see the light of day on uh on playstation onto our next story about star wars so last week ea announced respawn is working on three star wars games the first is the sequel to jedi fallen order which is expected to release by the end of 2023 the second is a first person shooter led by medal of honor above and beyond director peter hirschman and the third is a strategy game led by former XCOM art director greg greg forsh whose new studio, Bitreactor, will be collaborating with Respawn. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think EA's deal with Disney to uh, develop and produce Star Wars games, I think that expires next year. So this could possibly be the last Star Wars games coming out from EA. Um, I would not be surprised to see Disney renew these licenses. Disney has been very, very aggressive when it comes to Star Wars games. We've obviously seen them being aggressive with Marvel games. And I think overall, obviously, not counting Star Wars Battlefront 2, um, Jedi Fallen Order was really, really successful. The fact that it was an original story, original character, and it was something that was official canon within the Star Wars universe shows that they put a lot of trust into EA and Respawn's team. You know, for, uh, for first of all, just going through each of these games. Number one, the sequel to Jedi Fallen Order. Um, long overdue. I definitely, I really, really loved the first game, I just thought it was a good game. I think there's really no other way to so look at it. Combat was pretty fun. Exploration was fun. Uh, the dialogue and the writing was really, really good. Um, puzzles were, were really cool, too. I just, I just really genuinely uh, enjoyed this game. So I'm definitely looking forward to whenever that sequel uh, comes out. A first-person shooter is interesting. 
especially since we really like, I mean, we really don't know anything outside of it being a first person shooter. There was basically confirmation that this is not a Star Wars Battlefront game. So I think it would be kind of cool to have a, you know, first person, you know, story based Star Wars game, you know, whether that is, um, you know, th th there was footage of that old cancel game from EA Star Wars. I think it was 1313. I can't remember the exact name uh, where you play as I think you played the game as uh, Boba Fett, if I'm not mistaken. It was either Boba or Django. I can't remember. And, um, you know, it's very, very, very early, but uh, it looked kind of cool for something that was like super early in development. And, you know, it. I, I can't imagine them not going that sort of bounty hunter route for something like a first person shooter, especially with the success, the recent success of the shows, The Mandalorian and the story or the, the chapter of Boba Fett, story of Boba Fett. Um so I think that would be uh, really interesting to see. A strategy game also sort of just makes a lot of sense for um, the Star Wars franchise. So all these games all sound like really, really good ideas. Who knows when we'll actually when these games will actually see the light of day. Um, but I think this announcement was not only just to drum up excitement, probably um, to also recruit uh, people onto these teams. Um, but then who knows, maybe it was also just metrics to share with the Star Wars team or with Disney's team when they reopen negotiations. Cause I, I definitely don't think EA wants to lose this license. And I think what Disney has done with Star Wars, which was, you know, not really sort of, uh, locked down this license to a single developer or publisher was a very smart decision from Disney. So currently, you know, EA has these three games. We know that Ubisoft, uh, is it Massive Entertainment is the name of the studio? The, the, the studio that worked on Division, uh, they're working on their own Star Wars game. And then we had that Quantic Dream game that apparently is going through development hell. So who knows when that particular game is coming out. But uh, obviously there are a lot of Star Wars games in development, I think was the right call from Disney. Uh, to do something like that. I think the, the one takeaway that I took from this announcement was I just don't understand how Respawn is, <laughs> is able to do this, you know, a, uh, you know, working on three Star Wars games on top of continued work on Apex Legends. Obviously, they had a separate team to work on that Medal of Honor above and beyond VR game. But it's, it's really interesting to see this, um, this company grow over the last, you know, five to seven years from, you know, the humble team that started one of the most impactful first person shooters in gaming history with Titanfall um, to go on to create this amazing third person action adventure in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order to be able to hot drop a, an instantly successful battle royale with Apex Legends and, and to be able to grow that into what it, it has become today to moving on to creating, you know, three separate Star Wars experiences. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, the fact that Zampella is now overlooking Battlefield as a franchise now and, and everything that has stemmed from this one team is pretty amazing to see and uh yeah I'm, I'm very much looking forward to 
everything that I have to deliver from these uh, three separate experiences. And for our final story, we're going to talk about Ubisoft and a particular interview that uh, one of their employees had about NFTs. Uh, but first, I want to quickly touch on Hyperscape. So last week, Ubisoft announced Hyperscape was shutting down and servers will be taken offline April 28th. So about two months from now, this game will be gone forever. Uh, which is kind of crazy to think, right? Like, you know, giving these players two months notice. I, I You know, normally when games close down or shut down, there's usually like a, 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 a pretty good period of time that those servers are still offline or usually they would announce, hey, no additional support for this game and then keep the servers on for a little bit of time. But the fact that they're pulling the plug so fast really shows just how small that player base has become. Um, what was also interesting about this announcement was that when the announcement was made, I went to their official Twitter account for this game. And I noticed that this announcement that the servers were being shut down was the game's first official Twitter communication. This is June of last year. So, so their last tweet was June, 2021 before this recent tweet a few days ago that hyperscape was officially going to be shut down. So that is pretty indicative of the type of support that this game had seen. So I wanted to go through a few key takeaways from something like this happening. Number one is, I, I, I got to admit, I, I definitely called this from the very beginning. I mean, the moment that this game was announced, the way that it was released, its marketing strategy... I remember when it was first announced, texting uh, a friend of mine, shout out Rich, and I kind of was telling him, I was like, man, this rollout really sucks because, you know, the game was trying desperately to uh, take this genre of battle royale, uh, add the speed and movement of a game like Apex Legends, but then add verticality to it. And on top of that, they were introducing a lot of these in-game mechanics that would increase the, the, the TTK or the time to kill, which was one of the earlier complaints of the game. And, um, the, you know, they had this whole, I remember they had the Twitch integration where you can watch a streamer playing a match and then vote on different things that would be happening in the middle of the match. And it was kind of a lot going on. And they they never formally introduced the game. There was these rumors that Ubisoft was about to release a battle royale tomorrow, something like that, called Hyperscape. I remember those uh, sort of leaks where streamers were not invited, excuse me, streamers were compensated and paid to play Hyperscape either day one, day two, or for like the whole week. I can't remember exactly what the numbers were. But obviously, a lot of their marketing budget went towards that in order to get them early play and then allow uh, the public, the public allowed to be, um, excuse me, the public be allowed to play 
the game after the streamers. But pretty much their entire marketing strategy was using streamers as a little bit of a crutch in terms of like, hey, I'm going to pay you to play this rather than um, the way that a lot of these other companies have been able uh, to do it, which is not kind of cast that much of a wide net at launch, but create a game that created enough buzz where I wouldn't have to pay one of these top streamers. They just would say, oh, this sounds pretty cool. And I found that really weird about Hyperscape's um, opening marketing because I looked at it, I was like, man, I would actually just uh, market to Battle Royale players first and foremost because the art style was very uh, unique for that IP of Hyperscape. I thought the, the art style was kind of cool. The whole sort of digital landscape of it all. And I think that if they would have focused their marketing dollars very early on on, on um, just going after regular Battle Royale players that were just looking for something new, I honestly think they would have gotten all those streamers for free. So the fact that they paid so much money for I think it was a huge waste of money. But very early on, uh, I said, wow, these guys are like kind of parachuting <laughs> right in the middle of this battle royale craze and i just felt like they just weren't doing anything different enough and i remember saying you know this is not going to be easy you know dropping a free play game in this landscape especially within battle royale is just not as easy as it used to be the issue right now with Battle Royale and what Hyperscape had to go through is a few things. Number one, it shows just how tough it is to introduce a brand new intellectual property, period. But just it becomes that much tougher when you're trying to introduce a new IP in such a crowded genre, such a crowded market as a Battle Royale. You know, Apex Legends was able to do it because they were so early to the party. I think that Apex Legends... Um, was able to drop in very, very early, and they were able to deliver an extremely polished game right from the offset with so many unique angles compared to what we saw from uh, anything else that was currently on the market. The fact that they use legends with their own abilities, their own personalities, um, you know, obviously the movement system, uh, teams of three, the uh, the respawn system, the ping system, they, they did a lot to break down Battle Royale and, and talk about what are some cool things that we can introduce. Or look at Warzone in the addition of the Gulag, for example. Just um, these core mechanics that really change what change the definition of what a Battle Royale can be. And Hyperscape didn't really do that enough. They I think they really thought that their, vertic they, their, their vertical combat would just be enough, and unfortunately, it's not. The other thing that it shows is the one thing I've been talking about with multiplayer games for a while, which is Fortnite ruined it for everybody. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because Epic Games has been able to generate so much revenue and pump it back into Fortnite that Fortnite is really truly a service. You know, it's when we talk about games as a service, I think I. I put Fortnite in a league of its own because when you're thinking about a proper service, you're really wanting something fresh, something new, something exciting at 
regular intervals, right? When you think about social media, like YouTube or TikTok, you're expecting that homepage to look different every time you go on. You're, you're expecting new, fresh experiences. The same thing goes for services like, <clears throat> excuse me, Netflix, looking for new films and TV shows, whether there were old films that are being added that you haven't seen before, brand new TV shows. You're looking out for something every week. Even if it's not something you're going to particularly watch, it's always as good to see new content being added into that service. And that's what Fortnite has been able to successfully do. You know, it feels like every week there's things coming in and out of the vault. There are skins going in and out. There are obviously the these huge quarterly events. There are these um, collaborations with different intellectual property. It's very hard to compete with that. And you know, the one issue that I saw with Hyperscape when it first got announced is they came with no roadmap. Like you have to have a consistent roadmap um, in order for something like this to be successful. So I think this is also one of the reasons why you see Every time they've announced a free-to-play game now, it's all new IP. And that was another mistake that, excuse me, it's all based on old IP. That was another mistake that Ubisoft made with Hyperscape. You know, you have this free-to-play battle royale, and in the middle of its execution, it still hadn't found its footing, but yet they were announcing all these other free-to-play games that still haven't even seen the light of day right? You have Division Heartlands, you have X Defiant, you have that Ghost Recon Battle Royale, which was immediately dumped on the moment that they uh, announced it. Like, you're announcing all these free-to-play games, but the one free-to-play game that you actually executed and released, you're not even paying attention to. It just really, it just really didn't make any sense. And just to move on from this, I remember talking about X Defiant. When they announced X Defiant, I said, wow, what a horrible name. <laughs> First and foremost, has to be one of the worst names I think I've ever seen in any title. But I looked at it and I was like, man, this was the game you guys should release instead of Hyperscape. Because there was one thing that free-to-play was missing, and it was a free-to-play deathmatch game. And Halo Infinite has, has satisfied that itch. But free-to-play shooters have become synonymous with, like, Battle Royale. And I was like, man, there's, like, this big gaping hole in free-to-play deathmatch. And I also say that there's a hole currently for free-to-play arena shooters, um, which uh, we haven't had. You know, like, I think a new Quake would be extremely successful right now in the right hands, for example. Arena shooters, I think, could make an, an absolutely massive comeback because... I don't think we've seen like a really good arena shooter with a strong IP attached to it. And I think it would play really well for the Twitch crowd. But, you know, Ubisoft obviously pl didn't play their cards right. right. Um, it's always sad to see a game shut down. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of men and women that worked really hard to make this successful. But it just really felt like. It was released and not even Ubisoft believed in it. it, it I think it was something that um, the numbers didn't bounce back correctly. And uh, it, it just showed that they really weren't very interested in, in saving it. It looks like they just left it to die over the last years. It's, it's, um, it's been out. And, uh, and that's it. That's it for Hyperscape. So like I said, it, it, it will be shut down 
April 28th. Now, to our main story, last week, a website called Finder interviewed Nicholas Pouard, VP of Ubisoft Strategic Innovation Lab, and Didier Genevois, Blockchain Technical Director at Ubisoft Strategic Innovations. And in this interview, the key takeaway that gamers took away from it was, quote, gamers hate NFTs because they don't get it. And um, that was sort of the narrative that was run through on a, a lot of websites. Not saying it was a skewed narrative. It was, for all intents and purposes, for as many words, it was kind of what these um, Ubisoft employees said. It was mainly this Nicholas Puard, VP of Ubisoft Strategic Innovation Labs, driving that interview, that direct quote from him was, quote, I think gamers don't get what a digital secondary mar market can bring to them. For now, because of the current situation and context of NFTs, gamers really believe it's first destroying the planet and second, just a tool for speculation. But what we at Ubisoft are seeing first is the end game. The end game is about giving players the opportunity to resell their items once they're finished with them or they're finished playing the game itself. So it's really for them. It's really beneficial, but they don't get it for now. Also, this is part of a paradigm shift in gaming. Moving from one economic system to another is not easy to handle. There's a lot of habits you need to go against. A lot of your ingrained mindset you have to shift. It takes time. We know that. Now, this entire interview, honestly, top to bottom, when you read it, it really feels like it was controlled by Ubisoft. It's uh it, it 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 feels like um the questions sound like the interview is trying to get to the root of the issue, but they still turn out to kind of be softball uh questions. It it, it almost it, it it really just feels very prepared when you read those answers to the questions. It feels like, you know, um it's like Ubisoft is interviewing themselves, you know? <laughs> and um you know, to basically say what this guy had said, which, which is which is uh, another weird layer to it for me to believe that this was controlled by Ubisoft and then for them to still get it so wrong is it's just weird as hell, man. It just it just went against everything that I've ever known about public relations from, you know, my time doing it in gaming. It's it's so weird because to say something like this, you're basically doubling down. And uh, it's just immensely disrespectful for you to run a company and say, yeah, our consumers just don't get what we're doing. At that point in time, if that is a sentiment that is going on in your company, then you have to take responsibility for what's happening, like first and foremost. And it's the one thing I've talked about when it comes to NFTs within our industry right now is that companies like Ubisoft do refuse to take this step back and sort of have this open enriching dialogue whether it's internally with their own teams or externally with other players to alleviate a lot of these questions that people have and a lot of these issues that they have you know instead of going direct to consumer um addressing a lot of these concerns and once again doing what i still have yet to see a triple a developer do which is properly explain why is it that this is beneficial to players um, this is going to continue because you are going up against a wave of overwhelming negativity when it comes to NFTs. All right. So I want to talk about also these other promises that were made within the interview, because I felt like a lot of news sites that reported on the story 
just reported on this one thing about, yeah, you know, uh, gamers just don't get it. Unfortunately, that's where the story ended. And I feel like it was it's kind of a disservice to everything about NFTs because you you know it's important to get the full story, whether you agree or disagree with Ubisoft. Uh, this is one thing I've been championing for so long when it comes to NFTs is it's important to see where it is that they think that they're going, what it is that they're promising, what it is that they think that they're going to do, what it is that they're trying to accomplish. I don't think it's healthy for anyone following this industry, for anyone that plays video games to just shut down NFTs simply because the way that I look at everything is that the box, you know, the doors has been swung open. Pandora's box has been opened. This concept of shared economies, tokenomics and gaming, uh, individual bubble economies being brought into franchises or, or, or publishers uh, putting up gates within their own economies, um, tradable, resellable assets, all of this, all of these ideas in my opinion, or something that it's like desire and technology have now met. And now a lot of publishers are basically the questions that they're asking themselves is, wow, so we used to be able to sell an asset once, make our money, and our custom consumers have genuinely been okay with it. They've been okay with buying something from us, basically renting it and being okay with it. But what if we, you know, took our hands off that off that rope a bit, gave them a little bit more and said, well, you can resell it, but obviously I'm going to take a cut of it. It's almost similar as when um, companies around the world decided, yeah, we really need to, to push digital gaming because when we do this physical, every time my game is sold, I get zero dollars from it. But every time I sell a digital game, I get a bigger chunk of that uh, percentage. I get a bigger chunk of that money. Uh, but on top of that, they are unable to resell it. So I gain a new consumer. I don't have a consumer that's buying something used anymore. That's also why you've seen so many publishers launch their own PC launchers. You know, Rockstar has their own. EA has Origin. Ubisoft has their own launcher. Because they understand that if they control the store, then they control the, the, the bulk of that percentage, right? This is all about desire meeting technology. So I wanted to go over a couple of these other questions uh, because I think they're important. And I think a lot of games media continues to create this disservice when it comes to this particular subject, especially websites like Kotaku where they take these stories and they just take that one point that serves them, like, hey, I fucking hate NFTs. Oh, this guy said, you dumbasses don't understand NFTs. Oh, I'm going to run with that. I'm going to get a bunch of fucking hate clicks uh, because I know that the gaming community that, that reads Kotaku and follows my Twitter, they hate NFTs, so they're going to click on it and they're going to leave those you know, emotionally charged comments and to me, it's like, man, why don't you guys talk about all these other points that were brought up? Because they are interesting conversations to have. So this question, and do you see a future where the majority of Ubisoft games, if not all the games, are tied into quartz and digits in some way? The answer was, actually, we are a very decentralized company already. Sounds like bullshit to me. We let each project's team decide if they want to have digits or not or use the quartz platform itself. So it's open. I think this is complete bullshit. I just, I kind of can't 
imagine something like this not changing within Ubisoft um, because it doesn't matter. Like, listen to me right now. Do not listen to any publication that tells you that this Ubisoft Quartz release was a failure. It was not. This Quartz release was an absolute success. Okay, don't let anyone tell you that this was a failure because it was not. Okay, because the metrics for success and failure from, you know, writers and journalists that I've been seeing, they've been getting it wrong. For them, success meant people are getting these NFTs, these digits, and they're reselling them for like 200 bucks, 300 bucks, right? Or you're seeing a lot of people listing them. Like, that's the measure for success. I'm like, no, that doesn't make any sense. From the Ubisoft perspective, success to them was very simple. Are people redeeming these digital items? That's it. That's all they cared about. They cared that, number one, the system actually worked, which it did. It was a smooth launch for them. Number two... Are people, are Ghost Recon Breakpoint players actually redeeming this? And are we having um, actual Ghost Recon players redeeming it? Which was another criteria that was successful for them. So for all intents and purposes, it was a success. Ubisoft doesn't care about people reselling it. For them, what matters is that once it's resold and the NFT changes hands or the digit, quote unquote digit, does it work in that new person's game? So they're just looking at the technical, um, uh, the, the, the actual technicals of the whole thing. Is it actually working? So this was a success for them. And to me, for, for this uh, employee of Ubisoft to say, yeah, no, no, you know, no part of our company, no team is forced to use digits. That sounds, I, I, I actually don't, I'm going to be honest, I don't believe that, but obviously we'll have to wait and see. Another example given was player choice. He said, the first point I would say is that digits are fully optional, something we've built outside the game's economy. So you can use Quartz or you can choose to not, not to use it. It's really a matter of personal choice. At no point will we force our players to use Quartz and digits. We just inform them that there is a new system that could provide them with higher value than the existing ones. But then right after that, he confirms Ghost Recon digits are exclusive to digits. So I feel like that's not really player choice, I guess. But I guess what he's trying to say is that Ubisoft wants to create this system where currently the way that they're looking at this, that digits will not replace regular microtransactions. It's just another layer. And I'm going to talk about why this is a smart decision going forward. He also writes, then there's the way we built the platform regarding eligibility criteria. We've made it so it's somewhat hard for people to get into it. You must purchase the game. You must play at least two hours. So it's a bit complicated for pure speculators to go there and invest and inflate the markets. It's not that complicated either, but there are so many other options out there for speculators to get into and mess around. We think, and the first figures we have corroborate our expectation, that Quartz is primarily for our players. It's what we're seeing when we look at data. This is all, um, hold on, before I go to that point. So speaking on that one point, this is one thing that Ubisoft did that is a very centralized system. And this is the thing about NFTs and decentralized um, games, is this particular 
mechanic that they added to these drops is very centralized, right? You need a Ghost Recon account or you need an Ubisoft account. You need to have played at least two hours. One of the drops you needed 600 hours. I think the other one was 200 hours of playtime. And obviously you had companies like writers like Kotaku that had wrote up like, oh, you know, someone's going to keep their PC on for 600 hours just to get this drop. No, you moron. Of course, no one's going to do that. It was just for people that have been playing Ghost Recon. And let me tell you right now, I don't care what you think about Ghost Recon. If you think it's a shitty, it's a dumb, stupid game, um, people are still playing the game. Just because you think a game is garbage doesn't mean that there aren't players. Okay, I've dumped on Hyperscape since the, since the moment it released. And trust me, there are going to be people. There are people that are still playing it daily, and there will be people playing it right up until April 28th. So your feelings don't matter about a game's use. Okay, people will still be playing it, right? It's uh, subjective, not objective. So um, when we look at this, this is actually one of the positive things that Ubisoft has done. And this is why I like to dig into this NFT thing, because the way that I personally look at it is, once again, I think the door is open. I think this is going to happen whether you like it or not. And you're better off being informed. That's where I look at it. Because I'm just soaking in information. I'm learning about these drops, the way that they've done it. And let's say all of this fails. I've lost nothing. <laughs> like, like it, 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 but if it is successful, now I'm much more knowledgeable about what's actually happening, right? Rather than like, oh, this sucks, shut it down, blah, blah, blah. You're better off being informed. Because out of everything that Ubisoft did with this sports platform, this was one of the more interesting things where normally when it comes to dropping NFTs, obviously we've seen a lot of people do art and, and profile picture projects and all this stuff, is that there's really nothing stopping a whale. And what whales will do is they'll buy bots, they'll uh, find, their, find a way to buy their, their way into whitelists, or the moment that something drops, they'll snipe it at the lowest price that they can get. They'll buy 30, they'll buy 40, they'll buy 50, um, controlling a good pie of that uh, of that overall drop in which they can at some sort of manipulate the price a little bit, manipulate the price action and the movement of that speculative um, asset. But Ubisoft introduced something that once again, like I just feel like you have to commend them for thinking like this, okay? Because at the end of the day, if you're creating a system that you're saying, man, this will introduce um, unique assets and tradable assets and sellable assets for players, but keyword is players, you know, they wanted to make sure that, hey, when we release this, no one can just, you know, straight up redeem 20 helmets from the very beginning. The only way that they can accrue 20 helmets is to buy it um, in the aftermarket. Which, um, you know, I, I thought was really well and it was thinking ahead because that is kind of would become an issue in terms of the future of these types of uh, revenue streams is someone just straight up uh, controlling a drop and sniping and being able to control a lot of those assets. There's also this promise of controlling inflation that they made, which I thought was interesting 
quote, remember this is still an experiment. We will adapt the volumes of our upcoming edition so that there's not too much inflation. Our main concern is to make sure that even on a secondary market, prices do not go too high. So that's still accessible to regular players. Once again, yes, I know these sound kind of empty. This could be a bunch of bullshit promises that they're making, but it's important to highlight these types of things because then, you know, as a player, you can go back and say like, look, this is one thing that one of your employees said. You guys said that you will be controlling the drop. So what he means by that is basically controlling the amount of these uh, digits that release at a time. So if the prices go too high for an item, maybe the next drop won't be a thousand. Maybe it'll be ten thousand. Maybe it'll be twenty thousand. For uh, for example, so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, towards the end of this interview, Nicholas also talks about a shared economy with players, which is the main thing that I wanted to talk about. Quote, the interest in the centralization for a centralized company like Ubisoft is to open the gates of our games and make them bigger by sharing a stake with our players to build new experiences that are on top of what is in each game to date. It's a new way to see what a game could be. I don't want to go into numbers, but owning a percentage of a huge ecosystem might be even more interesting than just owning a game today. Now, this is what I consider the slippery slope of decentralized gaming, right? This pitch that gamers can be compensated for their contributions, then essentially partaking in uh, the economy of a game's success. This is the slippery slope um, because this is not something that this is easier said than done to implement. It's easier said than done to control an economy uh, for a game, whether it's digital or, or fiat economy for a game. Um, but I, I'll use PlayStation's Dreams platform as an example to explain this a little bit better. So currently in Dreams, the way it, it, it's been released is that any Dreams owner can access any creation at no extra cost, right? So I bought Dreams for 20 bucks. I can play any and every creation that's made by someone else. Uh, and I'm not paying anything extra. The other thing that Dreams does is that any Dreams creator can share assets at no extra cost. So let's say you build a really nice tree. Sharing assets and dreams is, is heavily encouraged. So if I'm creating a scene or a game that requires trees, instead of having to waste money building a new tree, I can just use your asset and you are credited in my creation. So that sort of open source, I guess, uh, type of model is heavily encouraged in dreams. Now, the thing about it is that the entire economy of dreams is run on passion, right? Creators create because they love it. That's it. It's the same thing as Super Mario Maker, right? People make these levels because they love it. There's no compensation. Your only compensation is a thumbs up. People may be leaving comments that they like your level. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, seeing a lot of people using an asset that you created. So feelings, right? But feelings don't pay the bills because... It also is a huge time investment. So the question about a shared economy, and once again, these are one of the doors that are being opened right now, whether it takes the form of NFTs or, or otherwise, is what if an economy was created that rewarded those creators, right? 
So the positives are that you're rewarding creators for their time, but it also creates a revenue stream for Sony. So these are the questions that arise from this type of shared economy type of model, right? This model would create a revenue stream for Sony. So maybe they'll take 10%. Um, is that bad? Right? Because that's one of the things that I've been hearing about with NFTs is, hey, the only reason why Ubisoft and EA and Take-Two and these companies are interested in NFTs because now it allows them to sell you an asset that every time you sell it, they make money. Right? Um, so let's say that there is this creator economy where somehow <clears throat> as a creator, you're paid a dollar every time someone plays your level or, or something. I don't know. I, I can't really think of anything. Or maybe someone can, you know, accrue dream coins and those coins can be converted into real money and you can sort of tip people on, on, on a game that you play. Like, man, I really love this game. I'm going to tip a hundred coins and, Eventually, you can cash out those coins for, for real money uh, or something like that, right? But Sony takes 10%. Is that bad? That's, that's kind of the question that's at the core of this issue is that a lot of people look at it as like, oh, this is evil. This is bad because they're going to take 10% every time you sell something, right? But um, if you control the platform, you have to have a stake in the game, right? So it's like, is it bad that YouTube create a platform and ad revenue is shared, right? Is it bad that Twitch created a platform and they're asking to share in that revenue? You know, um, the typical royalty fee right now that we're seeing is 10%. Usually the creator takes 10%. The way that I look at this whole thing is that if I buy a sword for five bucks and there's a potential that I can resell it at some point in the future, right now that potential is zero. There's zero dollar, there's zero chance that I can resell that sword. But let's say I buy it for five and I could sell it for two. This is a sword that you can't get anymore, but it's also it was also kind of common when it first dropped, right? But let's say there's a new player that's coming into the game and they really like that sword and the only way they can buy it is on a player marketplace. And let's say I can sell it for two bucks. And out of those $2, Ubisoft is going to take 20 cents. <laughs> so I'll walk away for $1.80, but Ubisoft is going to take 20 cents. The way that I look at it is that 90% of something is better than 0% of nothing because that's the alternative. And I think this is the thing that I want gamers to think about when it comes to NFTs is that at the core of this issue is ownership of digital items. That's what excites me and gets me optimistic about NFTs in whatever form it takes, right? Because a lot of people say that NFTs are looking for problems to solve. And the way that I look at it is like, this is a problem though. This is like, this is a fundamental issue, especially in the game industry. Whereas we move closer and closer to digital overtaking physical, we do not have a way to own our digital items. We have zero agency over them. We can't trade them. We can't lend them out. We can't gift them to a friend. Once we buy them, the license is locked. We're renting it. And um, that's kind of the way that I look at this whole thing is, 
you know, I, I look at it as like, man, am I looking at it wrong for thinking that keeping 90% with a possibility to liquidate something is better than just complete zero? I don't know. The other problem with monetizing anything is the economy can become uncontrollable very quickly, right? So the issue with this whole thing is that the prospect of making money will bring derivatives, it will bring copying, it will bring exploitation, it will bring overall laziness. This is what we've seen out of any creator economy out there, right? When you look at Twitch, the moment that something goes viral, the moment that there's a new meta, the hot tub meta, for example, now you have thousands of channels of, of people in hot tubs or licking microphones or whatever else, else there may be. There was the... Uh, the the view commentary meta for a while where you're just watching a TV show and talking about it. Now that meta has been killed, right? It sort of stifles creativity. So if you're creating a platform like Dreams and you're saying like, hey, you can monetize your creations, um, the challenge is controlling that economy to make sure that there aren't derivatives. Like I'm not creating a game using nothing but recycled assets, for example. That's another issue with, with, with bringing something um, into this. The other problem is that this concept of a shared economy and the fact that it will benefit players and players can finally make money for creating stuff is that it, the reality is that it's going to become a pipe dream for most people, right? Because you take Twitch, for example, there are over 7 million streamers daily about uh, and only about 50 to 60,000 are partners which is like a crazy number of 7 million, only 50 to 60,000 are partners and are able to partake in a 50-50 split out of a subscription, right? So there are a lot of questions surrounding when it comes to creating these types of economies, which the, these are the answers that I want the most from these Ubisoft employees. I wish to see a an interview that says, how will you guys actually think that you'll be able to successfully execute something like this? So this is the way that I personally believe AAA developers will, or more so what I believe this is the way that I think they should use NFTs in games. Because as I said, I don't think this is something that is going to go away. Because I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you talk to a developer about, hey, you know, you guys sell all these skins, but no one's able to resell them, you know, wouldn't you want that to happen? They would just probably laugh at it because technology and economies and revenue streams, they, they move, um, they move at pace with the buyer. It's almost like the, like the consumer must be ready for a change or the consumer must demand a change before a company actually executes it, which is why we live in a nation where people are able to make as much money as they possibly can, and we encourage it to happen, right? When I look at Nintendo, I don't like that Nintendo took uh, three games that you know, the old, the, the, the youngest one is over 14 years old. I look at the Super Mario 3D All-Stars collection. I don't like that a company took these three old games, barely touched them, and charged $60 for all three of them, right? But in the economy of capitalism, a company should be able to charge what they think they can get away with, not what they think they should charge, which is why they charged 60 and they sold over 9 million copies in just a few months, or you look at the Nintendo Switch Online and charging $50 a year for some old N64 games that they, 
they definitely didn't touch still have glitches still have issues they're very slow to fix it they're only releasing like one new game a month which i talked about and i said exactly that's exactly what is going to happen when i talked about this a few months ago i don't like that they do it but i have to sit back and respect the business decision because it's being done you might not like microtransactions you might not like that halo is now free to play and colors are locked you know you have to pay for new colors I don't like it. I understand why some people don't like it. Unfortunately, there is a, even if it's a small percentage of players, because people need to understand this, is that when you open up a free-to-play, you have this big influx of players. You only need a small percentage for the economics of this thing to make sense. You just need a really healthy, you know, 10%, maybe even less than 10% to spend more within a few months that they would have spent or you would have made off that one consumer by buying this game $60 at retail. You just need a, you know, a, a percentage of those people to really stimulate that economy and, 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 and for the math to make sense for this game to be free and open to all players for it to, to, uh, to make sense. And I think the same is going to happen with NFTs. When you look at what happened with quartz and digits, you have these journalists that are telling you, wow, what a massive failure. You you know, they're laughing at Ubisoft. It's like, you morons, look at this. No one wants these things. They're selling for like 20 bucks. Ah, you, you bunch of idiots, you failed. And I'm like, bro, perspective. You guys are looking at it from the completely wrong way, right? We're in the middle of a gaming, you know, uh, 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 excuse me, we're, we're in the middle of a moment in gaming where it feels like NFTs are universally hated. And Ubisoft took one of their most poorly performing games, Ghost Recon Breakpoint, and they were able to, uh, I, I think all digits were redeemed. That's, I don't know about you guys, but that's a success, right? Once again, they took one of their most poor performing games that's been out for years and somehow they had remember only only players only people that ubisoft account that were actually playing the game were able to redeem these digits and the digits were still being redeemed i don't know how many of those helmets were redeemed but i know the pants definitely all every single one was redeemed and i think it was like i know you need it 200 hours but i honestly can't remember how many of those pants were done so think about that. You're, you're, you're looking at it as like, man, we this is it. We're all in unison. We all hate NFTs, but there were enough Ghost Recon Breakpoint players that probably created their first ever wallet, first time ever learning about NFTs. And they were able to redeem this because once again, it was all done for free. And I think this is how companies will use NFTs. Is they're going to treat it just how they treated um, battle passes, the same way that they treated loot boxes, the same way that they treat microtransactions. It is optional. It's layered on top. You don't have to partake in this economy. You can still enjoy the core game, but I'm going to try my best to get you into this economy. Far Cry 6, I played from beginning to end. The moment that I booted the game up in the main menu, hey, buy these new skins. Look at the, the this car. When I go to change the outfit for the dog that I had with me. They were trying to sell me additional outfits. No, 
I'm not the guy. You're not, you're not selling to me. I'm sorry. I'm not the guy that's going to spend money to make my dog dress differently or I'm not, I don't care about the skin, especially in a first person game. I don't care what the car looks like, right? I'm not the, the ideal consumer for that, right? It's optional. It's layered on top. As much as people want to, oh my God, these games are filled with microtransaction, blah, 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 blah. Like this isn't like mobile gaming where at the end of every level of Far Cry, I'm hit with an ad to, to buy some new shoes, right? It's really not as forced as people want to, to make it. So this is how I think companies will use NFTs in their games. Because once again, love it or hate it, this is going to become a legitimate revenue model or I believe it will. Okay, if if it doesn't, whatever, I'm wrong, right? But we'll have to wait and see, right? So first and foremost, I think that the door is now open for resellable digital assets, whether it's NFT or not. I think that what will happen is that I think Ubisoft will offer NFT benefits to willing participants and create NFT marketplaces and allow them to be accessible to unwilling purchasers. So I think well, I think the best way that this will be used is that you're using NFTs as rewards for in-game accomplishments, right? Almost like a free battle pass tier, but you can only access it if you create a wallet. So I look at it as like, I think Ubisoft strategy should be similar to what they did with Uplay. Uplay was like one of the worst things that Ubisoft ever did. It was very annoying. It was cumbersome. It, was, it felt bloated. It, it, it was like layered on top of the games. It didn't really work right. It was like a website built into each game. It was just ugly. It didn't really work. The rewards usually kind of sucked. You know, um, the UI wasn't very good. Just everything about it was wrong. But it also creates a good use case for what they're trying to execute with NFTs, where you tell people like, look, NFTs and, and whatever, we'll call them digits. Maybe they create the Ubisoft Quartz Pass. Like that's the new you play. You can sign up for this as optional, but when you do in-game achievements and uh, accomplishments, now you get just free items. And maybe they obviously elevate the, um, what do you call it? They elevate the, Jesus Christ, what's the word that I'm looking for? The quality, <laughs> that's the word. They elevate the quality of those items that you're able to uh, redeem. The other thing I think is going to continue happening is I think publishers like Ubisoft will continue to centralize their marketplaces. You know, buyers can buy NFT tools of access, but only wallet holders will be able to acquire, sell, and, and eventually evolve those assets. You know, this coaxes non-NFT players to join basically the chance to make money. You know, Ubisoft centralizing assets, locking acquisition behind played accounts and play walls will be a good way to fight outside speculation of whales, but it also proves something that, uh, you know, people that have been in NFT space have talked about for a while, which is uh, the kind of, the concept of decentralization is, is, uh, is a tightrope. And companies like Ubisoft, are, I don't think they're very interested in losing total control over the assets that they that uh, they create. So the smartest way to introduce into the game is going to be to make them optional and 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 be very, very forceful in that messaging to say, hey, we heard this loud and clear. We just want you guys to know that the regular way that you guys acquire assets, microtransactions, assets unlocked in game, none of that is going to change. 
If you don't want anything to do with NFTs, if you don't want to buy and sell assets, it's fine. We have no desire to turn every single piece of digital item into an NFT. If you don't want to deal with quartz, you don't have to. If you want to, you can sort, sign up for the quartz pass. The same thing as Uplay, right? Uplay, a lot of people found annoying. Nope, I don't want anything to do with that. Normally in a lot of their games, they will show skin and they will say, hey, the only way to get the gun skin is go through Uplay. A lot of people are like, ah, screw that. I'm not doing Uplay anymore. I think this is going to be the best way to introduce it to the entities. I think in, in, introduce it to the games. I don't think forcing it is going to be a way to do it. So for example, I can play Halo Infinite right now without spending a single dime. But purchases and all that stuff, battle passes do not affect the base level experience. I think that's going to be the way that a lot of these companies uh, should be implementing NFTs instead of going point blank and saying every single digital item you buy now will become an NFT and you have to have a wallet. I don't think that's the right way to go. Um, the other thing is attaching NFTs to rewards rather than digital scarce goods is a win all around players are basically rewarded with free assets for playing with no pressure to sell it also increases player retention especially over other similar multiplayer titles because there's an opportunity to be rewarded with not just limited time assets but also the opportunity to make money by just playing the game keyword the opportunity um and I think that's going to be the key selling point for publishers going forward, NFTs, especially because of the. it's not only just the negativity surrounding it, but then you have so many in the game's media that I think a lot of the points are very valid. Um, and I definitely don't ever sit here and say pro or anti, because I think you have these very extreme sides, right? You have these NFT bros that are so fucking annoying, uh, GM, we're going to make it to the moon. All this, ugh, it's so awful. I hate it. Um, and then you have this this, this far-leaning uh, anti-NFT. This is going to burn a hole in the planet. This is awful. This is just money laundering. You know, people use this you know, to buy cocaine. All this garbage that they talk about that don't really understand the tech. Or, excuse me, have not looked into positive use cases of the tech. That's what I'll say. Or you have these NFT bros that are like, oh, you know, you know, you'll be able to get a Master Chief helmet and then, you know, you'll be able to uh, have LeBron James wear it when you're playing NBA 2K27. Like, no, obviously that that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, and then you have the anti side that will use it as a straw man and say like, oh, you know, these idiot NFT supporters think that you'll be able to use a Halo helmet in Assassin's Creed. And it's like, no. No, people that really understand technology don't think that that's possible. So it's really weird when people keep bringing it up, but they bring it up to be a straw man because it's easy for me to knock something like that down. That's the reason why it keeps being brought up, which is really, really annoying. So the key selling point for a lot of these publishers is going to be how can I insert NFTs and or an economy into my game, but not change traditional player habits? Um it's the same way that they've been able to introduce any other type of successful revenue stream into their games. How can I introduce a way for me to increase my revenue? Uh, and once again, people need to remember once the other thing people need to remember is that we're thinking about these types of new revenue streams in terms of the rich getting richer, but we're not talking about small developers and the impact that can have on them and their games. Right. Um, 
you know, free limited time flippable skins and items can become the next huge market, uh, you know, for gaming. When you think about multiplayer games, I know that so many of them are going free to play because increasing the player base also increases the chances someone will spend money. It's like, uh, you know, I can charge you $400 to get into my amusement park or I can make it free or five bucks to get in, but then charge you individually for every ride. Uh, no outside food, so I can charge you for overpriced items while you're inside the park and all this other crazy stuff, right? Uh, it just increases the chances that someone will spend money. The same goes for free limited time assets. When you give away free limited time assets, you increase the chance players will keep returning, you increase playtime, and then the FOMO of rare assets increases the chances that these assets will be sold multiple times and Ubisoft and other developers will profit 10% every time. That's, I think, the play that Ubisoft is looking at is it's almost a little bit similar to free to play. It's like, yes, I'm not selling this game to you, but by giving it to you for free, I'm increasing the chances that you'll spend money later. Uh, by giving away only 10,000 of these guns or 10,000 of these gun skins or 100,000 of these gun skins, I'm increasing the chances that this will be, each of these assets will sell multiple times each over the lifetime of my game. And I'll be able to make a, um, you know, a lot of money off of it. And like I said, there are a lot of negatives to this type of system. A lot of people look at it as like, oh, you know, when they introduce a skin, you know, that skin will be usable forever. I'll be able to use a neck call of duty. But you're basically trusting this company to do that. It's essentially what you're doing. You're saying that Ubisoft created that Ghost Recon helmet, and I'll be able to use that helmet in every future Ubisoft game. But Ubisoft made zero promises when it came to that. When they released that digit, they definitely did not say, hey, we promise this asset will be usable in all Ghost Recon games for the future. Of course, they didn't do that. These games run in cycles. They have absolutely no incentive to keep that asset usable in the future. They'll look at it as like, well, now you have an asset in your wallet and maybe if it's a 3D model, someone create, could create some sort of third-party application where they'll be able to, to recognize this asset in your wallet and you'll be able to, to display it in a 3D space, metaverse shit. There you go, right? So of course there are a lot of negatives to this, which is why I never talk about this. I like to talk about this from a business perspective because this is a business decision that will affect gamers and companies equally, which is why I think it's important and imperative to have this conversation now rather than just sweep everything under the rug and say, oh, look at these idiots. You know, they think that we're all stupid um, because we don't understand NFTs. And it's like, well, you as a journalist, don't you think it's your responsibility to, to to flesh all this out so everyone is understanding, you know, both sides of, of the story instead of just sweeping everything under the rug. Um, and that's the, the other thing I wanted to, to bring up is that the narrative I hear is that the rich get richer. But, you know, what if this revenue stream was applied to a smaller developer like, you know, Hello Games and No Man's Sky 2, where potentially a revenue stream exists outside of a marketplace that takes traditionally 30% Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, Steam. They all take 30% not only of the game, but of every single asset that's traded. You know, where buying items directly from a decentralized marketplace nets Hello Games 
99% of your contribution compared to 70%, right? It's almost like this argument about Steam versus Epic Games. I'm like, look, if a game exists on both, I don't care how much you like Steam. If you really like that developer, why wouldn't you buy it on Epic and give them 88% of your 50 bucks rather than 70%? And the same goes for any smaller developer that will in the future try to use these mechanics, these revenue streams, these marketplaces, the blockchain, decentralization, NFTs, in order to fund a future project or to have their own decentralized marketplace for a game. You know, a lot of these will be on PC, having their own individual launcher. Maybe, you know, they'll use um, websites like Rarible, which have very low fees. Uh, a blockchain like Tesla's, which is not energy intensive, in order to buy, sell, and trade assets so that it doesn't go through a third-party marketplace like Steam or Xbox or something like that, uh, or Microsoft, where, once again, uh, the marketplace will take a 1% to 2% for facilitating the transaction. Usually, the average is 1% to 1.5%. Uh, as proof of stake, blockchains get better and better. A lot of their fees are turning to actual pennies, for example. Um, so more of that money goes to the smaller developer. To me, it's like, okay, this is an interesting explora ex exploration of the technology, but we're so stuck on people selling pictures of penguins that you know we can't really even have the other conversation. The, the, the big negative also of a shared economy in a game is the unfortunate reality of this entire situation, which is how exhausting all of this is. Because in the year 2022, it genuinely feels like everything is monetized. Like there's no leisure, there's no leisure activities. Everything has to be an opportunity to make money. And this is the sad truth. This is why I hate all of this. I don't like speculation. I don't like any of this in video games because I, like a lot of gamers, want video games to remain a very pure activity of fun, as it should be, which I think single player will remain that way. But multiplayer has turned into this monster of its own where there's almost like there's no leisure or pleasure when it comes to multiplayer games. Like I, I personally myself have stopped interacting with multiplayer games because it feels like every single time I play, I have to be sweating. Like I have to win. Like I have to be perfect every time or I get screamed at or cursed out on um, by my fellow players because it's like they've taken it way too seriously. Now imagine with money involved. Um, you know, it's like people telling you, Man, why are you just playing games? Like you can stream playing those games, potentially make money. You know, why are you just playing a game? Why not record it and then you can post it on YouTube so you can potentially make money? We're taking a an activity that was traditionally looked at uh, as hey, you're just doing this for fun. You're doing it for you to enjoy it. And then a revenue model like Twitch was introduced where it said, hey, you know that one thing that you did for fun and stress relief? Why not now take it, turn into an entertainer, uh, reintroduce that stress? <laughs> now it's not stress relieving anymore. And now you're having to entertain people for four hours a day and you're turning it into a potential job, a potential, a potential to become the next ninja, which is not easy. 
and now you're investing time and time equals money, but there's no guarantee that you're actually going to see something in the end of it. This is the over, like it's the dark cloud that hangs over all of this, in my opinion. Um, I don't like having this conversation, to be honest. I don't like thinking about speculative markets. I don't like thinking about video game skins one day being considered a speculative asset rather than it just being a skin for a game, right? I don't want to have these conversations. But at the end of the day, I think ignoring them is just as bad. And it's the one thing that I think a lot of websites are still doing to this day is that they're ignoring the reality of something like this being very real and actually happening. You know, companies like Square Enix introducing tokenomics into their game and trying to uh, economize and monetize every single action. It's, it's a real, it's a very real danger. And it's something to be concerned about because there are a lot of dreams that are going to be sold, right? There are going to be these dreams of, you know, man, wouldn't it be great if you could get paid for creating, you know, Minecraft structures and all this different stuff, right? Uh, but th the reality of it is is not going to be that easy. It's not going to be the same. Um so it, it it really is one of those things when it comes to NFTs. I'm I'm right there with a lot of gamers where it's like, man, I, I kind of don't like this direction that we're heading. And you see it very early on from a lot of companies, Konami and Square Enix, um, to be more exact, even more so than Ubisoft, which is crazy, where they're looking at this as like, holy shit, like there's a lot of money to be made here. And that's not really where this starts. The beginning of any revenue model that's being introduced into gaming has to start with the player. You have to put the player at the center and say to yourself, can I introduce something that will make me extra revenue? But then at the same time, can I introduce something that is still beneficial to the player? And I think this is a balance that a lot of companies are not really thinking about. They're looking at these huge sales. They're looking at these speculative assets and these, and you know, these communities being built like the Board Apes Yacht Club, which hit a hundred Ethereum. A single Ethereum right now is twenty five hundred dollars. So you can do the math how much each of these assets is costing right now, and they're thinking to themselves, "Holy crap!" Every time someone sells a uh, Board Ape at two hundred thousand dollars, those creators take ten percent of every one of those sales, and that's what they're looking at. They're not thinking about how can this benefit the player. They're thinking, how can this benefit me as a company? How can I make more money? We see what happened with Activision. We saw what happened with Blizzard when the greed is involved. And unfortunately, it's so unfortunate. We live in a country. We live in a time right now where greed is not only celebrated, greed is rewarded where you're rewarded in these different economies and these creator economies for being lazy. You're rewarded for 
getting away with shit. You're rewarded with stealing ideas and not crediting other creators. You're rewarded for taking other people's works and scripts and plugging them into your own. The loudest person in the room is rewarded. It's not the person that came up with the joke. It's the person that repeats it and just says it a lot louder. So, you know, there is a lot of darkness to this. To me, it's more about navigating through it and hoping to, to, to find a light at the end of the tunnel. But I feel like so many of these websites are doing such a major disservice to this industry because all they're doing is sweeping this shit under the rug. They're plugging their ears alongside with their readers, and they're just hoping that this is going to go away. And the way that I look at it is there's just too much money flowing into and out of this economy, and right now it's absolutely a bubble. It absolutely is. I tell people all the time, 99% of these NFT projects that are being built are going to absolutely fail. Even the ones that you think are doing really well right now. You know, a lot of people like to compare the NFT craze to Beanie Babies. And I love this quote that was brought up by by, uh, Gary Vee, which was, even though Beanie Babies failed, plush did not. Right. When you think of the economy of just plush toys, it it never died. Right. It's just that particular one intellectual property of Beanie Babies had its moment. Right. It rose to the top. It was part of pop culture, and uh, now it's just not as valuable as it used uh, to be. Which is like I said, ninety nine percent of these people things are going to die, but. This concept, this idea, the blockchain and all this stuff, I, it's going to be very hard to close that door. So we're better off having these conversations right now. And it's important to have a conversation. It's important to have a dialogue where you're not existing on just so far into one side's ass that you're not listening to the other side. And the same goes for NFT, the NFT bros. Oh, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Fuck you. And... Uh, the same thing to the other side, which is like, oh, you idiots are paying for photos, right click, save and all this bullshit. And it's just like, you know, you're just 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 you're better off trying to to, to understand exactly what is uh, happening with with all of this, even if you have no interest in buying and selling anything at all. This week's hot releases tomorrow, February 1st, Life is Strange Remastered Collection, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. February 3rd, we have Sherlock Holmes Crimes and Punishments coming to Switch. February 4th, we have Dying Light 2 Stay Human, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series X. Now it's time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. Valve has announced Stream Deck orders will open and start shipping February 25th based on the order in which reservations were taken. Purchasers will then have three days to complete their purchase or their slot goes to the next person in line. Look, Valve was able to come in with a completely unannounced product, okay? And I understand that they solely control the manufacturing and the distribution of this item. But the fact that they came in and solved the secondary market issues that we're seeing a company like PlayStation battle for years is laughable because they did the smartest rollout I think I've ever seen a company ever do. And you see how much it's impacted the secondary market. 
right? Way less people have been buying on the secondary market. They've been way less listings, and I've been following it. On eBay, the listings have restarted because this thing is about to come out. But the fact of the matter is that right now, the secondary market exists for one purpose. It is you were interested in a scene deck, you ordered it, but you were late. So for some reason, you're impatient, you can't wait. So you're going to pay the extra $500 to get your Steam Deck early. That's the only market that exists. There is no market for people that were not able to get a Steam Deck the same way as PlayStation. It was a brilliant rollout. This is also a brilliant way of doing it. They're shipping it February 25th. If you are on that first list, you're going to get an email. You have three days to complete your purchase. If you don't, your spot goes to someone else. Brilliant. Just a very, very smart way that Valve has executed this. Big ups, big shout out to Valve for doing it this way. Um, and that's it. That's really all I wanted to bring up about that. And finally, the first trailer for the Halo TV series dropped yesterday alongside an official date, March 24th. This thing looks way better than it has any business looking. We're talking about a show that is what, like at least like seven years in development it's been since we first heard. I think it might even be 10 years since we first heard about a Halo TV show going through so many directors. You know, remember at one point it was supposed to be on Showtime. You know, you're talking about uh, networks. Now it's different networks, different directors, different writers. And for it to finally arrive like this and then we finally see and it's like, holy shit, this looks really, really good. Um, it looks like it has a unique story compared to what we've seen in the Halo games. A lot of the assets are just like one, one. You look at that energy sword. Uh, you look at the elites, you look at the Spartans, you look at Halo Master Chief's armor. The fact that uh, I, th I think the actor's name is Pablo Schreiber. I think it is. I might be 100% wrong, but a great actor. Uh, the way that they filtered his voice so it sounds like Master Chief, I thought was was really smart. Um, it just looks like a really good TV show. And I think that's 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 the way to execute these things. If you know nothing about Halo, does this still look like an interesting show? And honestly, it really does, especially off the back of the success of Mandalorian. You, it, it, it looks like it was influenced a lot by that series. So I'm very much looking forward to it. I thought this was going to be an absolute disaster because of how long it's been in production. But damn, it just looks really good. And before we go, shout out to Ed Boone. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences has announced that he will be inducted into their Hall of Fame, the godfather of Mortal Kombat, Ed Boone. So definitely big ups to him. Shout out to him. Congratulations to Ed Boone. Thank you guys so much for joining. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Camp Koji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next week.